Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. This week, I'm in Eastern Europe in the country of Montenegro. Rick, you and I have been coming here for years to prepare the teams to do work amongst the local body of believers here in a country that has very few believers. And we're using sports, English, music, arts and crafts, everything that we can to use that as a tool to help share the gospel of Christ in Nigshik, Montenegro. We also know that the Jewish people will be observing Tishbaav, which is the ninth day of Av. It's a fast day where they observe the time of the destruction of the two temples. We'll talk about that on the program today, but we've got a lot of news events to examine, so let's get started, Rick, with our first Ken Timmerman. Well, that's right, Jimmy. I have got Ken Timmerman with us. He is our expert in geopolitical affairs. He joins us every week. He's an author and an analyst. You can find out more about him. Sign up for his newsletter by going to KenTimmerman.com. Ken, thank you for joining us. It's great to be with you, Rick. Thanks for having me on. Well, we've got several different areas for us to look at today, and we're going to start in the European Union. There's a story going around right now. Some people are calling for European Union-wide voting ideals. Can you talk about that? Well, Rick, you know, there have always been a group of globalists inside the European Union who would like to essentially abolish the nation state. They would like there to be one Europe. Everybody in Europe to be able to vote for the parties in other countries, one citizen, one vote, so to speak. I think I can announce to our listeners today that this is not going to happen in the near future. There's a tremendous amount of pushback against this kind of um, globalism, against this one world or one Europe state. Uh, And in fact, it's not just today. It's not just with the rise of Trump and of right-wing leaders in Europe that this has begun. It really began nearly 15 years ago when the Europeans rejected a new constitution that was drafted by the former French president, Giscard d'Estaing. And they rejected it for a number of reasons, one of which it was nearly 300 pages, was essentially a lot of legislation. It was not governing principles such as we have in the United States People found it far too uh, complicated. They found it far too intrusive into their personal lives. And they realized that they really didn't like giving up their sovereignty to a bunch of uh, elected uh, officials in Brussels from other countries. So I think the nationalist forces in Europe are now coming back to the fore. Uh, it's, It's a curve that's been going on for some time. But I think that is where we're headed. Well, Ken, we've talked about that on this program before. There is a a backlash, maybe a story like you just indicated that's completely at odds. This new, quote-unquote, far-right Europe, a more nationalistic, how is that Europe going to be different than the one we have today? Well, I think it's going to be uh, more uh, focused on the nation states. Europe has been dramatically incapable of providing security to its citizens, either economic security or even national security. We've seen the differing reactions in Europe to the Ukrainian crisis. And frankly, Rick, you know, I've I've lived here in both Sweden and France for many, many years, uh, and we come here every year for several months. Europeans tend to crawl into a cocoon during periods of crisis. They do not want to be outward looking. 
Uh, we talked about their relations with China a couple of weeks ago. If there's a fight between the United States and China, I believe the Europeans will really head for the exits. They will crawl into their cocoon. And the same thing is going on with Ukraine. Uh, in addition to this, and this is again mitigating against a strong European Union, there's a rejection of the elites here, just as there is in the United States. People see, for example, the extremely high cost of this so-called green energy transition. Uh, people who want to take road trips in their new electric cars, if they want to drive, for example, even from northern France to southern France, they have to essentially allot two times the normal driving time to be able to charge their batteries. And that's if they are lucky enough to find a fast electric charger. There are not very many of them around. So this is the kind of thing that has made Europeans Eurosceptics. Well, we'll move away from the European Union, but still in Europe, and we'll talk about Russia. Now, we've reported, and it was uh, often in the news, uh, of the Wagner boss, the mercenary boss, Prigozhin, who tried to lead a mutiny. Well, it looks like he's gone, but according to what they're saying, may not be forgotten by Vladimir Putin. Well, there's still conflicting rumors about what Prigozhin was up to, who was behind him, and where he is now. And there is no definitive answer. There was just this past week, Rick, a video ostensibly of Prigozhin surfacing in Belarus, welcoming his troops. It could have been somebody else. It could have been faked. But so far, nobody has denied that it actually took place. So there are a lot of things we don't know. Right now, there are two conflicting theories about Prigozhin and his revolt. The first is that the CIA and Western intelligence agencies, and including intelligence services in Ukraine, were working with Prigozhin to try to actually topple the defense minister and the chief of staff in Moscow. They wanted him to reach Moscow to take over the defense ministry, and they expected ultimately that this would weaken Putin and potentially lead to the downfall of Putin. That's theory number one. So when you hear, for example, the U.S. CIA chief, Bill Burns, talking about how Prigotin's mutiny exposed all these weaknesses inside the Russian military establishment, you should take that with a grain of salt. William Burns may have been in part behind this revolt. Now, the other theory, though, is exactly contradicting, and that's so fun about looking at these stories, right, is that the Prigotin rally was actually a Putin deception to smoke out delinquent generals inside the military, those generals who, by the way, about eight or 10 of them have disappeared since the revolt, those generals who were critical of Putin and cr critical of the uh, Russian military and Russian uh, defense establishment in general. The bottom line on all this is that we in the United States in particular lack insight into Putin's thinking, into uh, Putin's worldview, and that is a very dangerous thing. Well, it certainly is. And we'll continue to keep tabs on that situation. We'll continue on, though, in this program. And one of the reasons we love talking to you so much, Ken, is because your breadth of experience and you truly are an international person. Earlier this year, you were reporting from France. You have a place in France and you were in France for part of the summer reporting on the riots that were taking place in France. And now you're in Sweden. I don't know if you're following the news or if the news is following you, Ken. But there's several stories coming out of Sweden now. The first one is their entrance into NATO and the dynamics between what they had to do to appease Turkey for that entrance. 
Uh, right. And we, we talked about some of that price that Sweden paid, giving up Turkish dissidents, Kurdish dissidents, sending them back to Turkey. And this there is a bit of a backlash here. There, certainly the parties on the left and the human rights advocates in Sweden are upset. There have been some demonstrations uh, in the streets of major cities uh, by Swedish Kurds and Swedes of Turkish origin protesting the entry into NATO. But again, if you look at the parliament, the parliament vote was 269 to 37 to enter NATO. That's a pretty, that's a landslide vote to go into NATO. So I think the parliament is a good expression of overall Swedish public opinion. The NATO entry itself is something that is popular because Sweden feels increasingly isolated, especially as they see the Ukraine war accelerating. They want it to be in NATO to have something of a security blanket. Well, staying in Sweden, Ken, and there's more news coming out of Sweden now. A diplomatic crisis has erupted between Iraq and Sweden. Can you talk about that? Well, this is over the uh, the burning of a Koran in Sweden by an Iraqi immigrant to somebody who was here really as a refugee seeking asylum. Uh, he's an Iraqi Christian, and he publicly burned the Koran. The Swedes said they couldn't stop him from doing it. It was his right to do something like that. He actually applied for a permit to do so. And in response, the Iraqi government has now cut diplomatic ties with Sweden over one man burning one Koran uh, in the streets of Sweden. And uh, not only has the Iraqi government cut diplomatic ties, but they have essentially stood aside as rioters stormed the Swedish embassy in Baghdad and uh, vandalized it, you know, quite extensive damage to the to the Swedish embassy. Look, the bottom line on this, Rick, and I think our listeners are aware of it, Islam is simply not tolerant of criticism or mockery. And when those things occur, uh, Muslims tend to respond, not with unkind words or with a mockery themselves, but with violence. Excellent analysis, Ken. Well, we'll finish up here. My final question, talking about Iran, and we talk about Iran often, looks like there's an escalation by the U.S. here. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it's a belated response to Iranian attacks on international shipping, oil tankers and other commercial ships. There's been over 20 of them in the past couple of months. And until just recently, the U.S. has done basically nothing. And it's uh, pretty surprising. Uh, you have uh, the Wall Street Journal had an editorial this week uh, wondering why the Biden administration seems to treat Iran, the Iranian regime at least, better than they treat the government of the state of Israel. And, and that's a very legitimate question and it's something that I have posed as well, not just with this administration, but during the Obama administration as well. Um, I have a column that's out with the Jewish Policy Center this week. It's in their quarterly magazine, In Focus. Uh, you can find a link to it on my website. But I talk about the historical background of why the left in the United States, including Obama and Biden, tend to prefer the Islamic Republic of Iran to countries like Israel. And the real short answer to that, Rick, is that the Islamic Republic of Iran hates America and hates American values. And that's something that these left-wing politicians in America embrace. For those that are interested in going to see that article, again, Ken's website is kentimmerman.com. Well, Ken, we appreciate your knowledge. We appreciate you sharing it with us every week. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much, Rick. God bless.
we got to take a break. And when we come back, our Middle East News Update with David Dolan, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Dodd Morris for Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. The United States Commission on International Religious Freedom recently released a report on violations in Russia since the war began in Ukraine. Some Christian denominations outside the Russian Orthodox Church are being targeted since they're perceived as Western. Eric Mock with Slavic Gospel Association says believers are still sharing the gospel. Several Russian Baptist churches are even hosting summer camps for kids. Wes Francis may not be very old, but he's already lived a lifetime of pain. Nearly everyone on the reservation has a story like his. The cross and empty tomb offered no hope because Wes thought Jesus was the white man's God. That all changed when he learned the truth through On Eagle's Wings, a division of Ron Hutchcraft Ministries. Now Wes spends his summers reaching reservations like the one he grew up in. Pray for open hearts as the summer of hope continues. Learn more at missionnews.org, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Dot Morris. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's Revelation, A Chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. This is our Middle East news update, and we talk about things that are taking place in the Middle East, and particularly Israel. To do that, we have author and journalist Dave Dolan. Dave, thank you for joining us. It's a blessing as always, Rick, to be with you. Well, Dave, I got uh, several things to get to, but I want to start off with the big story in the news this week, and it was the president of Israel, President Herzog, not the prime minister, and maybe you can address that, but the president of Israel visiting the United States. A lot of things going into that visit. Can you give us the details? Well, yes, he gave a speech before a joint session of Congress on Wednesday. That doesn't happen very often, so that was a great honor, as he put it. He got no less than 30 standing ovations during the speech, Rick. The Republicans particularly rising to their feet when he mentioned that there would be no nuclear-armed Iran, that that could never be allowed, and that Israel remains a strong democracy, and, and that despite the judicial reform split, that it still is a vibrant democracy. And it's then that he mentioned the Tel Aviv Gay Rights Parade every year, mentioned it's one of the largest on earth, that brought the Democrats rising to their feet, cheering. In fact, it got the loudest, longest applause of any uh, of his comments, even though many of the Republicans, frankly, were not standing up and cheering over that one. But 
He stressed that the relations between the two countries remain strong, that the bonds go much beyond just economic or social, that the shared values are very, very deep. He mentioned uh, Harry Truman being one of the first world leaders to recognize the new state of Israel 75 years ago. And by the way, Truman's grandson was in the audience, and the President Herzog mentioned that, and he received a standing ovation when he stood up. But overall, a very good speech, but of course, it came a day after uh, President Biden spoke on the telephone for the first time with Bibi Netanyahu, the prime minister that you mentioned, the first time they'd been in contact, and he invited him to meet with Biden. He said, we can meet, but he didn't say at the White House. There's speculation it might be at the UN meeting in September in New York or possibly in Europe somewhere, but it was a step forward at least. The New York Times again was in the news. Tom Friedman, he reported that Biden insisted in the telephone conversation that Netanyahu halt the judicial reform program altogether, that he uh, just uh, dump it. Well, that didn't happen. The Knesset voted on Thursday, another vote to push that forward, and next week the full Knesset will vote on it, uh, just one item in it, but nevertheless moving forward. And uh, the Prime Minister's office denied that Biden had uh, told him that. In fact, they said the opposite, that uh, he said, if you have to do this, just do it quickly and as subtly as you can. So it was a conversation. We're not going to know exactly what was said, but Certainly, President Herzog's warm welcome showed that there is still very strong support overall, although five um, members of uh, the Congress did boycott the speech, but most were there, most were standing and applauding, so it shows that that relationship remains uh, very, very strong. Well, it certainly does, and of that we're grateful for. Well, I'm going to continue to cover that visit, and, and especially the judicial protest with Winky Madad a little bit later in the program. So I'd like to use the remaining time I have with you, Dave, to cover a couple other things that I thought would be interesting and in wanting to get your take, your opinion, your reporting on these subjects. One of these things is President Herzog recently calling Israel out for growing attacks on Christians in Israel. Yes, uh, he spoke on Sunday before boarding the plane to the United States about that issue, Rick. We've had, oh, eight or ten incidents over the past year, the worst being the desecration of the Anglican Cemetery uh, right outside of my window, frankly, across on Mount Zion when I lived in the center of Jerusalem. Several graves were tipped over and things were written on them. There were also spray-painted slogans on some churches, uh, reports that some soldiers had spat at the Armenian patriarch during a parade in the old city, and other such incidents. Also, we've had several uh, clashes with Messianic groups, Messianic Jewish groups, in recent months. One was a concert a month ago where a group of protesters came. But Rick, you know, the president did point out this is mostly being done by a very small ultra-Orthodox group that is very anti-missionary, very anti-Christian, would like to see, frankly, they say, the church is closed in the country, that it's a, you know, a idolatry to have statues of Mary and Jesus and crosses and all this all over the place. But again, this is a very tiny fringe group, and the president pointed that out. But he said it certainly harms us, our, you know, reputation, our image around the world to have these things happen. And it's just plain wrong, he said, for these sorts of attacks. He reiterated all religions are free to practice 
in Israel, the, the Muslims, there's Buddhists there, there's Baha'is there, there's all sorts of people there. The Mormons have a university up on the Mount of Olives. So he's reiterating that religious freedom really does exist, but we need to guard against these extreme fringe groups uh, carrying out these attacks. We'll continue on with our potpourri of news as we look at many different subjects in this report. And you've reported in the past about the Abraham Accords, and that is continuing to march on, sometimes even kind of under the radar. This week, work began on an Israeli-Saudi land bridge. Can you talk about that? Yes, this is quite significant, Rick, because it shows that, again, under the surface, the Saudis are cooperating more with Israel than they admit. Of course, they did start allowing Israeli overflights, commercial overflights to Bahrain and the UAE after those two countries signed the Abraham Accords with Israel in 2020. And then last year, after President Biden visited Saudi Arabia, and he takes credit for this, uh, they started to allow Israeli commercial jets to fly over Saudi airspace to further destinations in India, in uh, China, in uh, Thailand, and other places where they fly. And that shaves about two to three hours off of those flights, Rick, because they used to have to go all the way south into the Red Sea uh, to go around Saudi Arabia, or they had to go far to the north over southern Russia of that area. Now they can fly straight across. But this latest development, the um, foreign ministry is confirming that an accord is being finalized between Saudi Arabia and Israel to allow goods to flow across uh, the Saudi desert by truck and come from Bahrain, come from the UAE as well, and come from Jordan, and then cross the Allenby Bridge over the Jordan River, and then end up at Israel's two major ports in Haifa and Ashdod to be shipped to destinations mostly in Europe and the United States, etc. Well, now those goods are stopped at the Allenby Bridge. Some get through, but it's a lot of paperwork. It's a long process. So most Saudi shippers and UAE shippers, et cetera, have been going by boat from their own ports through the uh, Red Sea, up the Suez Canal, which costs a lot of money, there's fees, and all of that takes two or three extra days at least. Uh, in fact, some say it would be more than a week's time saved if they could just ship it overland uh, by truck into Jordan and then into Israel and to these ports. So it looks like that's going to happen, Rick, and that's another indication that the Saudis are much more open to Israel than officially is the case still, and that those Abraham Accords continue to bring freedom of movement and freedom of industry or greater freedom of those things uh, than we had before, and that's got to be a positive thing. Well, it does, and we'll continue to cover that complicated process that's going on there. Well, we've talked about anti-Semitism on the program, and this is not necessarily something coming from Israel, but I would like to shift it to Jews in Europe. Now, there has been a rise of far-right, or what they would call far-right extremist groups, especially and alarmingly maybe so in Germany. Can you tell us what impact that is having on Jews living in Europe? Well, Rick, in fact, the polls are showing that uh, if new elections were held in Germany, a far-right party that has some anti-Semitic elements in it and some uh, Holocaust deniers, etc., based mainly in the eastern part of Germany, that it would become the second biggest party in the parliament there. So that's significant. It's definitely on the rise, especially in Germany, but we've seen this in France. We've seen it in Italy. 
uh, in Poland and other countries as well. And of course, the Jewish groups are concerned about that, but they uh, they feel like they're the watchdogs really to point out the dangers of these things and to try to get, you know alert people in those countries and around the world to you know the dangers of far right parties like Mussolini's in Italy or of course Adolf Hitler's in. Uh, Germany uh, coming back into power and uh, pursuing anti-Israel, anti-Semitic legislation. Of course, the main attacks occurring against personal Jews in Europe over the past 20 years even have been mostly from Muslim immigrants from North Africa, from the Middle East, from um, Pakistan, etc. So they're less worried about native Germans or Italians, if I can call them that, you know, uh, white Germans, white Italians overall than they are Muslims, but they don't want to see these political parties really take over any of those countries. And so they'll be vigilant about that. That's a great thought, David. And anti-Semitism will continue to grow. That's Satan's subtle strategy to wipe out the Jewish people. And that's why we continue to watch what's taking place in the European Union, which is at least the infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire, which the Antichrist uses to provide peace for the Jewish people for at least the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. Well, David, we have one more story to ask you about China rewriting the Bible. We'll ask you that after the break, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Have you ever wanted to visit Israel and trace the footsteps of Jesus? With Rick and Jim's VIP trips, you'll see Israel past, present, and prophetic. Our VIP trips are typically smaller groups of 8 to 12 people. This smaller group size allows us to spend more one-on-one time answering your questions and personalizing our tour. It is a very intimate experience. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time not to only visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. We can also customize our trip for your family or small group. Please call Joshua Travel today and see how we can make your trip extra special. Call 423-821-3635 or visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. Coming to you from Montenegro. Rick, uh, this is a program that we helped start years ago in the early 2000s. We've been here for a long time. Uh, using sports and English, teaching English, arts and crafts, all kinds of information in a city of Nikshik, Montenegro, helping to share the gospel work here and help the local body of believers in this country. Very few believers in this country. In fact, we'll be talking to Daniel Petrosky later on in this half hour. Winky Madad's coming up. Rick, you've got some great questions that you ask him. I'm looking forward to that interview And we're going to continue now with a story that we brought. And I wanted to to ask Dave this question about China rewriting the Bible. Well, David, you are a Bible scholar and a prophecy speaker, and you've authored books. And so Jimmy and I wanted to get your take on a story that we saw. The story is that the Chinese Communist Party is trying to rewrite the Bible. Can you tell us what you know and what you think about that? 
Well, Rick, actually the reports say that they're trying also to alter the Quran, some Buddhist writings and other things. But in the case of the New Testament, the book of John, uh, a version has already been published where the woman caught in adultery, uh, you know, and the guys are about to stone her and Jesus says, you that don't have any sin can be the first ones to throw a stone. And gradually they all leave and he's left alone with her. And of course he then says, I'm not going to stone you either. Go your way and be at peace, but sin no more. Well, in the Chinese new version, Jesus picks up a stone as they all leave and he kills her. So they're taking away the grace aspect of the New Testament. They're changing other uh, teachings in it. They've already made churches throughout China, Rick, put up uh, the Ten Commandments in a new version, and they are ten rules about the Communist Party in respect for the Communist Chinese leaders and this sort of thing. So, you know, they're trying to rewrite Christianity and rewrite uh, the Bible, and it's just another sign that if this world power, if I can just be so blunt, if this great, large country, largest on earth, takes over the world like they seem to want, this is what we can expect everywhere, in the United States, in Europe, and everywhere. So this is a very serious development and a sign of, how can I put it, just how evil this communist government is and how threatening it is, and we need to be ever vigilant in the U.S. and Europe and elsewhere about this. Well, David, as always, your experience is very broad. Not only do you know what's going on in Israel, but that was an excellent warning that you gave us, and, and thank you for reporting on that. Well, David, we appreciate what you do for us Every week, being prepared and coming to us and sharing with our listeners, we look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm always glad to be with you, Rick. God bless. Great job, as always, David. And we want to go a little bit further into what's happening in Israel, and for that, we're going to go to Winky Madad. Well, that's right, Jimmy. Joining us today, as he often does, is our good friend, Winky Madad. He is uh, an expert on all things in Israeli politics, which is a very confusing subject sometimes. Former mayor of Shiloh. Winky, thank you for joining us. I'm glad again, once again, to be on the program. Well, Winky, we talked a little bit about this in the previous half hour with Dave, but I'd like to get your perspective as an Israeli citizen, someone who lives in Israel. We have seen in the news, uh, as they talk about this judicial overhaul, the protests are growing. Could you give us a status of where we are at? Where we are right now is that uh, some four to five of the elements that have been suggested that would rein in a too independent and an overreaching, I even would say an aggressive overreaching judiciary. Only one now is being on the edge of being legislated. It's gone through committee procedure. It's gone through three pre-readings and votes, and now it's ready for the last vote. So uh, I guess we're far behind. However, every single day, the anarchy, the frenzied opposition, the uh, heightened rhetoric it grows higher and higher. And although the numbers of the demonstrators have actually declined over the last few weeks, they're still getting a lot of coverage, sympathy, and some very high people, both in office and just outside of office who've just finished, like the former GSS aide or, some, or the former attorney general have been mouthing off in very, very unusual fashion here in Israel. 
Well, Winky, we have seen these protests, and like you said, maybe they're dwindling, but the they're becoming more uh, violent. I don't know if that's the word necessarily. But if we look at that, you can look on, on one end of the spectrum and say they're fighters for democracy. And on the other end of the spectrum, you could look at it and say, well, this is kind of sour grapes for people who lost an election and don't like the current prime minister. But are these protests as crippling to the country as maybe it looks like? Crippling, definitely not. In, in fact, I, the only thing I'm really happy about is that they're causing more and more people to react. Uh, this past week, week and a half now, we've had demonstrators, not very many, but enough, going out to the entrances of various kibbutzim to close them down and say, well, you guys are closing us down in Kiryat Shmona, in Herzliya, in small towns across Israel. And they go out to the nearby kibbutzim from which a lot of the demonstrators are coming from and simply park their cars right outside the gate. You've been in Israel, you know that the kibbutzim are not very large, but their economic infrastructure allows dozens to be freed for a day or so and form the backbone of many of these more interruptive type of demonstrations like closing down highways and stuff like that. In fact, last night I, I caught a, a clip. They had a march on Jerusalem, and they camped out of a forest, which you may remember, Ben Shemin, and a small group of uh, pro-judicial reform uh, protesters came out probably somewhere at about 2 o'clock in the morning and started shouting, shame, shame, democracy, democracy, waking them up which means that, you know, it's a two-edged sword, and they're provoking, uh, and they're making outrageous claims of dictatorship, of destroying the country, and it's, it's really poisoning the atmosphere without going anywhere because the coalition has a majority. Instead of working together with the coalition to perhaps tone down some of the legislation if possible, they're drawing a line in the sand and saying, we dare you to cross it. They are. And we look at it. To me, it seems like it's the democratic process at work. And then the protest can be a part of the democratic process. But again, like I said before, some of this certainly seems like sour grapes. I don't maybe that's too light of a word, but it certainly seems like people are trying to subvert democracy by uh, by these protests. Well, it's very interesting. We talked in the previous half hour about President Herzog's trip to the United States. He spoke to Congress. And we're made to understand that during these uh, talks that he had, even though President Biden didn't necessarily say this in the meeting, that he was very unhappy with the judicial overhaul. Well, I feel like there's a bit of a hypocrisy here. A couple of weeks ago, our Supreme Court had a few decisions that did not go in a direction that President Biden would have liked. And he said that we don't have a normal court, basically uh, calling into legitimacy the uh, Supreme Court of the United States. Do you sense a little bit of hypocrisy here from President Biden and the Biden administration? Well, I would say more from the administration. I'm watching President Biden and read everything and watch everything for some strange reason. And uh, I really fear for his mental capacity. So I don't exactly know how much he knows or is in command of in terms of data and, and analysis of what's going on. I think he's more being told what to do. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, when he met Herzog at the White House, he was simply reading from cards. He wasn't speaking off the cuff or even a memorized speech. Anyway, but that's your problem, President Biden. My President Biden problem as representing Israel 
is that it seems he's being directed by the most extreme elements uh, within what I would call the liberal democratic wing of the party. I know the progressives are off the wall, but they're only about 8 to, to 12, perhaps, and they really got a water spilled on them because they uh, boycotted the speech and everybody came out very pro-Herzog. So this is one thing that we Israel, of course, has a difficulty combating because, after all, we are a foreign party in, in this, and we can't really interfere that much. But on the other hand, we have all these liberal progressive Jewish groups who are, have the ear of the White House, and they, they drum the, the two-state solution. They drum the anti-judicial reform. And this is a very small echo chamber that the Biden administration is in. I mean, one of the things blew up in his face was the uh, Robert Malley case. Robert Malley is, was one of the most anti-Israel elements within the State Department. He, he was pro-Hamas being involved in the talks. And now he's in trouble with the FBI or whatever uh, on the Iran case. So it's not, it's not only, you know, our small issues. The Biden administration has problems with all these liberal slash progressive radicals. And it's going to do damage to the United States as, as much as it'll do damage to Israel. Very interesting. That is our President Biden problem. Well, some people call Israel the 51st state, some, you know, different things like that. We have had a very close relationship throughout the years. You're a dual citizen, I believe, born in New York City, Queens, if I'm correct. And now you're a, a citizen of Israel for quite a few years. So there's a close ties, close relationships. We talked last week about Thomas Friedman, the New York Times writer who was saying that we may be looking because of this judicial overhaul as a fundamental shift in, in our relationship. Can you speak to that just a little bit? Well, um, actually, I was thinking about writing an article about reassessing Thomas Friedman. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, not too many people know uh, when he was a college student back in the 70s at Brandeis, he was a member of the anti-Zionist Brera group. Brera is a Hebrew word meaning uh, choice, and he was very active at that time, even before becoming a correspondent or reporter or famous New York Times editor, whatever you want to call him. So uh, he's really mired deep in an anti-Israel uh, ideology that he's been trying to force on uh, the American, various American, American administrations if I can remind some of the older people here listening to me, the so-called Saudi Arabia uh, peace plan, that was his. He made it up and sold it to the, to the Saudis so that they can then come back and say, we're going to do peace with Israel. It was another way to strip Israel of, of its uh, national heritage in, in Judea and Samaria. So, uh, but, of course, there's also Israel is, can reassess itself, its relationship with the United States. Has the United States really, or I should say, not the United States, the administration, the presidential administration, has it been so good for Iran, not only for Israel, but for the United States itself? Has it been so good for supporting Muslim extremism across the world in various places without regard to uh, uh, forget Israel for human rights and other issues? So, yeah, why not reassess? I I'm not afraid of any reassessment. 
Very interesting. And of course, Israel has grown from 1948 from that small fledgling state into quite the economic and military powerhouse on their own. And it's not just a one-way relationship, that's for sure. Well, here's my final question for you, Winky, and this is going to hit home for you. I I was interested, you've talked about the two-state solution, and that is quote-unquote, the official position of the Biden administration, and I guess still the official position of the United States. There are many people that are still trying to revive or to continue to further the two-state solution, even though it is not working in any way at all. And for the most part, there are even more people that are in agreement of the fact of a Jewish state at all. So when we look at that situation, now we compare that to this judicial overhaul. When I look at the judicial overhaul, one of the things that we look at some of the characters, some of the actors, some of the politicians that are involved in power right now, they are very pro what the media would call the West Bank. Uh, We would call it Judea and Samaria because that's what the Bible calls it, and so that's what we call it. But the two-state solution, or those people that don't believe that Jewish people should be in Israel anywhere, they look at this judicial overhaul as maybe being a way to lay the groundwork for more what they would call settlement, but we were just calling it building. We were calling it adding homes. But can you talk a little bit about that? This, I think, might be the real point of the judicial overhaul, not that it ends democracy, but that these people are opposed to a Jewish presence in Judea and Samaria. Well, look, the issue has been that for the past three to four years, in growing intensity, that political wing that you described, which is anti-Judea and Samaria, very hostile to the integration uh, of an acceptance of the what we call the Haredi uh, population, and accepting the national religious camp as part of, of Israel, the army and its economics, etc., like that. What I would call, and you have to forgive me, uh, but I use the term WASP, white Ashkenazi secular privileged uh, Israeli, and they don't. It's like a class struggle. I, I don't want to be a Marxist <laughs> in my analysis, but they feel that they're threatened. Their Israel that they knew is being taken over by a whole new demographic, and uh, they fear. That's why they're reacting, I think, uh, to the most part in such ferocity and anger and I would even have to say irrationality in what they're doing and what they're, what they're, they're talking about. And so it's amazing. I, I just saw, and if you, if you follow my, my Twitter account, I put it up and I don't know if it's yet in, in English or with subtitles anyway, but it's a clip of a Zoom conference that was held in 2020 in which Ehud Barak lays out almost to the letter in detail what is happening now. And, of course, that was uh, under the pressure of Bibi's supposed criminal activity. So far, two of the four trials have been thrown out. One is, is almost over and finished with Bibi's almost assured victory. And the fourth one, I don't know what's going to happen with that. And you can see that they, they were just looking for excuses, they didn't like Bibi and his new coalition. It's an, it's a, it's a it's another Israel for them, and that is the reason judicial reform just fell into their lap in in a certain sense. And so uh, I would say you're correct. 
actually in, in the presentation of what is going on here in Israel, it has not as little to do with understanding of what the judicial problems are and much to do with we do not want Bibi. We do not want Netanyahu as prime minister. Uh, and uh, it's a sorrowful affair, actually. Well, Winky, as is often the case in politics, and especially so, it seems, in Israeli politics, there are many levels, many facets to the situation. Thank you for your thoughts. Thank you for your comments. Well, I thank you very much for taking the interest uh, in what's going on so that people at least get some sort of an explanation of what's going on. And uh, goodbye to you and our listeners. Thank you, Winky Madad. You know, Rick, we've always talked about the two states of Ezekiel 37 coming into play. That's still yet to happen in Bible prophecy. I think every time we talk about what's happening in Israel right now, it gives us an indication of how close we are to Ezekiel 37. But before Ezekiel 37, the rapture of the church needs to take place. As I stated at the beginning of the program, I'm in Montenegro, Rick, and uh, it's one of those areas where you and I worked for many years. And I'm here now with uh, one of our good friends. He's a Serbian working here in Montenegro, Daniel Pekoski. Daniel, uh, how many years have you been here in Montenegro? Uh, I came in Montenegro since 2009. So uh, I have a friend who, who jokes so like in our region. Like I was born, I lived in three countries, and I never left uh, my hometown. <laughs> wow, <laughs> so, no kidding. Yeah, so after fallen of Yugoslavia, like there were there were a lot of changes of the names. So I grew up in Belgrade, uh, one close town to a uh, small town to Belgrade called Panchevo. I studied in Belgrade uh, mechanical engineering, and God uh, called me to do the ministry in Montenegro. And then I decided to move in 2009 over here. You know, in a country with few spiritual leaders in the country, mm -hmm. I know that you are one of them that's helping spread the gospel, mm -hmm. carrying forth the Great Commission. Yes. You're not only evangelizing, but you're making disciples. Yes. I've seen that firsthand. But why, why here? Yeah. Growing up in North Serbia, I became a believer when I was about 17. So for in my hometown, there's about seven churches over there. And for me, it was kind of like, okay, normal, there's a church. But uh, when I was uh, part of a Christian uh, student group at my college, I couldn't imagine that in Montenegro, there are in a whole country, there is three churches. And at back in that, in that time, it was less than 100, 150 believers in the whole country. So for me, I was like, wow, I mean, everybody knows each other. So I was, I really grow a desire for Montenegro. So I was coming here for a short uh, mission trips, seeing the situation and so on. And God did the work in my heart. And then I decided like, I want to, uh, I want to come here. Also, uh, other reason is uh, my wife, she's Montenegro, <laughs> so I moved here. It's so, a good reason. So for locals, they think, oh, you came here because of love. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Montenegro, tell us a little bit about Montenegro. So, yeah, Montenegro is a small country on the Adriatic coast. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it has a less than a million people living here, so it's like about 700,000. Uh, it's very diverse uh, society, religious-wise, ethnically-wise. So there is about a majority of population declare themselves Orthodox Christians. And there's about 67% of those people. There's about 15% of Catholics and about 15% of Muslims. Mm -hmm. And uh, others will declare even atheists or 
which is interesting. Uh, after Second World War, majority declared himself as atheist because of the communism. How many believers, as we would term, believers yeah. in Jesus Christ? Yes, believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, in the terms of uh, uh, us evangelicals, there is now uh, at this point about 250 in the whole country. I do believe there is individual believers inside the big institutions like uh, Orthodox or Catholics. There is people who believe in Christ. So in, in that matter, I meet, but there are quite few, quite few who honestly love God and, 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 and doing good deeds uh, among other people. There is, there is a lot of political propaganda through, through both of these institutions and defending whether it's uh, uh, their national rights or whatever. Mm -hmm. And as a missionary, how are you received here in sharing and evangelizing yeah. and, and working in the cities? Most of people are thinking uh, that uh, I'm some kind of a part of a cult mm -hmm. and sect who wants to uh, brainwash them and do something. And uh, so the good thing is that I have Bible on my side <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and God. <laughs> so because when people start uh, like uh, arguing and put some arguments, I would usually like, hey, look at the Bible. And Bible is saying that. So majority of people never open the Bible in their in their life, mm -hmm. not read it. So that's uh, what I'm trying to do is to encourage people to come and read the Bible, whether it's together with me or in the small group or join the bigger group of uh, Bible readers and, 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 and seeking Bible, secret Bible study groups. And so we do all sorts of different things during the year just to encourage people to look at Jesus. And I'm trying to do my part of job and I know God is faithful. He will do mm. his part of job. Yep. And that is to touch people and to convert their lives. One of the things that I've witnessed as you were here, and I know taking forth the Great Commission mm -hmm. is making disciples. And I've seen that. Not only have you talked and you're helping guide our young people mm. in personal evangelism and how to witness here. Uh, as we all know, mission trips are really mm. more uh in a sense, they they give more to the people that come because it opens their eyes, mm -hmm. like Americans that come to a foreign field. Yeah, it opens their eyes to what's there. Mm. But it, you're making disciples here, not only with our kids, but with your young people in the area that you have Bible studies with mm. and that you meet with. Mm. Yes, it's a it's a it's a hard process. It's a long process. It's a really uh, it's a walk together with people. So I. There is different kind of, simply said, you just have to be part of their life. You have to have your life open to them and you hope that they're going to open their life. As I like to say, you, you open your life, you open your fridge, you open your wallet, you give your car, you give your house, you open everything for them. Because uh, that's how Jesus basically made mm -hmm. disciples. He walked with them three years, they slept together, they ate together, they spent all the time together. And basically witnessing with your life, because a lot of people want to see, are you walking the talk, what, you say, what you're saying? Because we had so many, whether it's politicians or leaders promising so many things and they all failed. Yep. So people don't trust many of public speakers. They're like, oh, he's speaking like this, but who knows what he's doing when the door is closed. Right. You know, so it's basically your, you have to have integrity in life and just witnessing so when the missionaries want to come and help and so on i just say just come and leave yes <laughs> pay your bills go in the post office whatever you do it's it, there's plenty of 
live your life. Live your life. Yeah. Live your life as a Christian, and people will see it, and then they will see it. It's it's true. Like a, like a Abraham when they when the Sodom and had the problems with other people who came to uh, conquer them. They came to Abraham because they knew that he will help them, even though he doesn't share same beliefs as them, and they know the the address where to knock the door. Yep. In these days, why is this important? Why? I mean, obviously. You feel God's calling on your life to do this. Yeah. It's not easy. Mm. It's tough. In a in a country that has point zero zero eight of the population yes. is even interested in being a believer yes. in Jesus Christ. Why do you continue to do this? Because I am more than convinced that this is the best way. This is the truth. Uh, and uh, especially in this time of instant everything... People search for instant solution on the internet and so on, especially with young people. They try to find answers. They don't ask their mom and dad anymore. They don't go to the priest or whoever. They ask Mr. Google about every question they have. And over there, there's all sorts of people who they don't understand that that's, that's made for profit, that's made for money, not really caring about their soul, not really caring about them. About them. Uh, and God is the one who cares about them. God is the one who loves them. He even loved them so much that he gave his life. And I want to share that message to them and to know that God is true love. He He really cares for them, mm. like not just caring about their clicks or money or whatever. Right. I know you have a favorite verse. I know one for your ministry that has helped you that really is one that's in your head always as you're walking the streets here and teaching and working yes. and carrying on amongst and fighting and living life in this area. What's that verse? Uh, for, for me, it's basically the whole letter of uh, Philippians. I just love how many times it says rejoice, 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 rejoice. And so many times. And uh, for me, it's just like because Paul is trying to, uh, like, to encourage people that there's people who are doing many things for many wrong reasons but in spite of all of that rejoice daniel thank you so much we continue to pray for your ministry here in the country and looking forward to working with you this week at camp monte thank you so much i'm looking forward to camp monte well we got to take a break and when we come back dr jimmy de young and the legacy series a new series on the book of daniel the times of the gentiles right here on prophecy today weekend Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, uh, I'm here in Nixic, Montenegro. We have spent many a days out uh, on the soccer field, the basketball courts, leading and using that as a tool to give the gospel message to a city of about 80,000 plus that there's only a small church here in the city. Certainly have. I have fond memories of Montenegro and Nixich in particular. And Jimmy, we stress the importance. We talk often about what's going to take place in the end times and what the Bible says about prophecy. And prophecy should motivate us to go out and reach the lost, to give them the gospel. And that's what you're doing right now. And I think that's great. And it's something that is a part of Prophecy Today's ministries. If you study Bible prophecy and it doesn't motivate you to be busy about evangelizing those around you, then you're missing the point of studying Bible prophecy. If you'd like to help Prophecy Today and our ministry of not only 
teaching Bible prophecy, but also evangelizing. You can go to prophecytoday.com. There you can support us by purchasing our materials, but also we have a donate button there. You can get a tax-deductible receipt for your gift to Prophecy Today Ministries. And of course, as always, keep us in your prayers. Thank you so much, Rick, for sharing that with our folks. And I know that we have those that will be praying for us. Well, on our legacy series last week, we studied the practical passages in the prophecy of Daniel. Remember, prophecy and practical living go hand in hand. Today, we'll look at the four prophetic chapters. Daniel chapter 2 is the times of the Gentiles. Daniel chapter 7, a focus on the Antichrist. Daniel chapter 9, the tribulation. And Daniel chapter 11, the alignment of the nations. Remember, the book of Daniel is a timeline for the Gentiles in our world today. This study is key to understanding how the end of years will play out in God's prophetic program. In order to see the overall scenario of God's plan through the ages, we must see God's plan for the Gentile people as it is given to us in the prophecy of Daniel. Please take your Bible and let's go to Daniel chapter 2 to start our study today with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. Let me give you the chapters that are prophetic. And these are the four main prophetic passages. I would jot this down so you can remember it. And the first prophetic passage would be chapter 2. And we're going to look at all of these in just a moment. But chapter 2 will be talking about the Gentile world powers, the times of the Gentiles. I would title chapter 2, The Times of the Gentiles. And this is when it's going to begin. Then the next prophetic passage would be chapter 7. And chapter 7 is going to talk to us about the personality during the times of the Gentiles, at least at the end of those times, the Antichrist. The Antichrist. That's one of 27 names for this world dictator who will be the main driving force during the tribulation period. And that's the third of the prophetic passages. That's chapter 9, talking about the 70th week of Daniel, or that seven-year period of time of judgment upon the face of the earth. Chapter 11 would be the last of the prophetic passages. In essence, I'm talking about the key uh, prophetic passages in Daniel's prophecy. And that would be the alignment of nations, but I'm just simply going to look at the first three nations who make a move against Israel as we look at the alignment of nations. We'll continue that because that's a major component in the timeline uh, for the Jewish people when we look at the book of Ezekiel. And so you have chapter 2, the times of the Gentiles, chapter 7, the appearance of Antichrist, uh, chapter 9, the tribulation period, the 70 week, 70th week of Daniel, and chapter 11, uh, at least the beginning stages of the alignment of the nations. Let me tell you, if you're going to study Daniel, you need to study it chronologically. All prophetic passages need to be studied chronologically. I'm going to show you that you cannot even understand, in my opinion, you cannot understand Revelation unless you do it chronologically. And uh, we'll look, Ezekiel is chronologically put together, but Daniel is not chronological. There are 12 chapters in Daniel. Let me tell you how you read the chapters chronologically in the book of Daniel. Chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. Chapters 1, 2, 3, 4. Then you skip over to chapters 7 and 8. Then you go back to chapters 5 and 6, and then 9, 10, 11, and 12. 
I'll give them to you again. Chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 7, 8, 5, 6, 9, 10, 11, and 12. Now let me show you why I say that is the case. Look at chapter 5, just a moment. Chapter 5, and we'll look at the last verse. Uh, Next to the last verse and the last verse. Chapter 5, verse 30. This is the record of the handwriting on the wall when Belshazzar, who I believe was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, has come to power, and he is uh, very arrogant like his grandfather was, and he uh, takes the vessels from the temple, uh, the temple in the city of Jerusalem that his granddaddy brought into Babylon, and he uses them in their drunken orgy that takes place that night. They put the wine in the vessels. The Mizrach, for example, which was the vessel used to put the sacrificial blood in. And so the priest could take them out and pour it on the altar. So he uses these vessels. He desecrates them before the Lord. And then the Lord sends in the Medes and the Persians to defeat the Babylonian Empire. Now notice verse 30. In that night was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans slain. And the Medes and the Persians, verse 31, take control of the world. Notice in chapter 5, Belshazzar is slain at the hands of the the Medes Persian Empire. Go to chapter 7 now and look at verse 1. Chapter 7 and verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Now it makes it pretty difficult if the Babylonian Empire has fallen and you've been killed to now come to power for your first year. Go to chapter 8 and verse 1. And notice what it says. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. And so I don't know why when we get to heaven on the way up in the rapture, if you need to ask that question, I'll tell you the answer because I'll know everything at that point in time. I'll have been changed to be like him. I don't know why. All I have to tell you is that's what the text says. I am locked in. I'm disciplined to look and see what the texts say and live by that because that's what I believe for my eternal existence in the heavenlies. So I'm going to do it when I study Bible prophecy as well. So again, chronologically, to check your numbers out, here's how you read the book of Daniel. Chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 7, 8, 5, 6, 9, 10, 11, and 12. Now let's go to chapter 2 just a moment. In chapter 2, these men, Daniel, Ananias, Hazariah, and Mishael, have qualified to be members of that group of wise men, the council uh, that would be advising Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, They got in there, they are in that leadership role. At this time, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. The dream is very puzzling to him. He does not understand what it's talking about. And so he calls a group of his wise men in. By the way, Daniel and his buddies were not in that group that came in. Nebuchadnezzar told them, I need the interpretation of the dream. And they immediately said, okay, Nebuchadnezzar, give us the dream and we'll give you the interpretation. He said, no, 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 no. If you can give me the interpretation, you can give me the dream. Now give me the dream and the interpretation. And they said, no, no, wait a minute, Nebuchadnezzar, nobody's ever done that before. How can we do that? We need to know the dream. We can interpret it. No, no, no. If you have the gift of interpreting, you can tell me what the dream was. And then Nebuchadnezzar looked at him and said something very serious. I tell you what, boys, if you don't give me the dream and then the interpretation, I'm going to cut your heads off. You're going to be dead. You won't be any more wise men. I'll have to get another group. And he dismissed them to go figure out what the dream was and the interpretation. Meanwhile, Daniel and his three Baptist buddies... 
We're having a little prayer meeting. What are we going to do? Wow, we got a crisis here. And Daniel was gifted by God. I'm not going to read all these. It's in the text. Read it. You'll enjoy the time of reading it. It'll be edifying to you. Daniel was gifted by God to interpret the dream. And so he goes in before Nebuchadnezzar to give him the dream and the interpretation of the dream. Look right here in chapter 2. We see he's going to give the dream. Verse 31. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image, this great image whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was awesome, or was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and of clay, and they break them to pieces. Then was the iron and the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken into pieces together became like the shaft of the summer threshing floor, and the wind carried them away, and no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. There's the dream, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, you get that dream? Look up here just a moment. It was the image of a man, head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thigh of brass, legs of iron, ten toes of iron and clay. A stone comes along, hits the image, bursts it up into little pieces, and like the shaft on the threshing floor in the summer, the breeze blew it away, and that stone became a mighty mountain. Notice the stone was cut out without hands, a part of what takes place when the temple is erected. All the stones used in building the previous temples and the next temples to come cannot be cut out with steel by man by hand. They must be cut out by stone. And so this was a part of a forecast or a prophecy of the one who would be that one who becomes the mountain, Jesus Christ the Messiah. The Messiah, Hamashiach, used in chapter 9. The only time in Scripture it's used. The Messiah would come and he would burst this image. Now the interpretation is essential for us to understand what it's talking about. So Daniel's going to interpret it. Verse 36. This is the dream and we will tell the interpretation thereof to the king. Thou, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom. Notice who gives him the kingdom. We get so uptight about the election process here in the United States of America. Folks, read chapter 13 of the book of Romans. Only those that I allow to be in a position of authority are there. I'm not saying we don't exercise our franchise to vote. I'm not saying we don't think that process through. But let's don't get so hyper about it. God's in charge. If we believe that, we can rest in that. And we don't have to get somebody elected so economically America's going to be saved. My Bible still has Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. My God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory through Christ Jesus the Lord. We get right out there on the edge. The reason we have the president we have today is because 26% of the vote for President Obama came from the body of Christ because they were concerned about economics. We're at fault for what we have. Let's don't get tight. Look here. Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of the world. He wasn't only president of the United States. He was the ruler of the world. And what did 
Daniel say, God gave you that position. You're there because of that. Verse 38. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given unto thine hand, and hath made thee the ruler over them all. Thou art the head of gold. Now he tells us what the head represents in this image of the man, the golden head. It's the Babylonian empire. What he is going to unfold for us here is the times of the Gentiles and the major Gentile world powers who will come to power in our world. In Daniel chapter 2, the first of the four prophetic passages in Daniel, we see the prophecy of the times of the Gentiles, as foretold through a dream that the Lord gave King Nebuchadnezzar, a dream which Daniel interpreted for the king. The times of the Gentiles extend from the time that Daniel was taken into the Babylonian captivity all the way through history and then into the seven-year tribulation period on the earth. It will come to a conclusion at the return of Jesus Christ, who will destroy the Gentile world powers. We are now living in these times of the Gentiles and quickly approaching the time when Jesus, the stone in Daniel chapter 2, when Jesus returns to earth. Next time, we'll study the rest of Daniel chapter 2 in order to identify the other Gentile world powers and how they will fit into Bible prophecy. This study, as I said, is key to our understanding of the last days. I'm Todd Morris for Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Eritrea began cracking down on evangelical churches in 2002. Now there are up to 400 Christians imprisoned there for their faith. Todd Nettleton with the Voice of the Martyrs USA says tomorrow marks 7,000 days of imprisonment for two Eritrean pastors. It doesn't take much to stand with the persecuted church. You can write your country's Eritrean embassy and ask about Pastor Haile Naizgi and Dr. Keiflu Gebremeskul still in prison. Learn more at missionnews.org. The Great Commission reminds us that being a Christian also means making disciples. Fewer than 2% of the world's 70 million deaf people have any access to the gospel. A handful of deaf ministries, including Door International, are working to change this statistic. They're launching a database this month to assess needs in deaf communities. Pray for this tool to advance the gospel among the deaf. Dodd Morris, Mission Network News. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. 
Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, great program again today. You know, I think it's so vital, it's so very important that uh, as we listen to these gentlemen discuss and give us an analysis of these stories that we bring to their attention, I think it's very important to understand the times in which we're living, don't you think? Certainly is, Jimmy, and that's why we do this program because, and again, you're there on the mission field right now in Montenegro reaching a lost area, and Jimmy, that is why we are motivated to do what we do, but we talk to these men, and they show us where we at. The, the Bible gives us the gift of prophecy, and these men, they are showing us that the uh, things are taking place around the world that are setting the stage for uh, these end-time events to begin, and again, that should motivate us. Yes. You know, let me ask you about a couple of things on the program today, Rick. One, the first question that you asked Ken Timmerman about the situation in Europe with a kind of a the United States of Europe doing a ballot, uh, a voting process, correct? That's right, Jimmy. And that's something right out of the page of Bible prophecy as we look. And we've talked about it, and it all kind of ties into the globalism that we've been talking about. And we know that the uh, the European Union is going to come together underneath the Antichrist. Again, Ken didn't necessarily, he said, he said, it's not going to work. But Jimmy, we know that it's going to work because the Antichrist is going to energize that, correct? You are absolutely right, Rick. We know at one point in history, in the future, future history, the Antichrist will use the revived Roman Empire, which at the very least, the European Union is the infrastructure for that. And uh, I think that this is the beginning stages of that taking place. Yes, nationalism would be an issue. It's about bringing all these different uh, states of Europe together to be a one voting process. And all it takes is one man that's going to bring it all together. There's lots of things. You look at it and you say nationalism may be a barrier. But Jimmy, over the last three years, and of course, over our lifetimes, but over the last few years since COVID and maybe even before mm -hmm. that, the world has changing and it can change so quickly. And we see these seeds being planted. And uh, who would have thought the things that took place during the pandemic who would have thought that that would have ever happened? Who would have thought that's where we would have been? What's going on in Russia, Ukraine? Now, all these things, we can certainly look at how the dots are going to be connected in the future. You know, and uh, I'll bring up the question that you uh, asked Israel Madad, Winky. You asked him about a two-state solution, but I thought, man, the answer that he gave, uh, and again, I brought it up at the end of that interview that you did with him about the two-state solution of Ezekiel 37. That was a little fascinating to me, his answer that he gave. It certainly was, and this is something that we've been looking at, the division not between the Israelis and the Palestinians, but the division in Israel, and it's essentially the division between the secular and the religious or the ultra-religious. And you talked about that from the book of Ezekiel, Jimmy. And, and we've been going to Israel for how many years? 40 years now. And we've seen this progression. And there were certain times when a temple on the Temple Mount was unheard of. I mean, after 1967, nobody but just a small amount of people 
thought about that. And even the the growth of homes in Judea and Samaria, homes for Jewish people, these are things that are going, and we see it happening today, that are going to divide the Jewish people. This week, the Jewish people will be observing Tishba Av, the ninth day of Av, when they commemorate. Well, it's not really a commemoration. It's a fast day. It's an observance of uh, remembering the two previous temples that were destroyed. So for three weeks leading up to this day, that will be a day that they all of the Jewish people around the world will think about the temple that's not there. And so here we're talking about this temple. We have followed it closely over the years, a temple that will be standing in the city of Jerusalem. So, you know, we have, uh, we talked about today, we talked about, the Antichrist or a leader, a world leader. We could go to Daniel 9.27, Rick, and it would play out exactly for us. Let me just read it for us. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. That verse right there explains that we need a person, which we would refer to him as a tyrant. We need a treaty, a covenant for one week of a false peace, and we need a temple, correct? That's right, Jimmy, and that reminds me of a message that our dad, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, used to teach, the treaty, the tyrant, and the temple. He was a big fan of alliteration, but it does help, and it does allow you to remember these things, and we have talked just about each one of those things on this program today. Treaty, tyrant, temple, when you look at that, that helps you remember and understand, and that's a, a method of studying God's Word. It's a great, uh, a great process, and we do provide those, um, you know, devotions and messages and things for people to grow. And if you don't use Bible prophecy to motivate you to live a pure, productive life in an unholy world and to be understanding of the times of using evangelism to get the message to the world, then you're not really understanding God's reasoning for putting Bible prophecy in his word. Rick, when we think about this and uh, we're looking at a salvation message, Dad used to say it's easy as A-B-C. That's right, Jimmy. He was also not only a fan of alliteration, but of acronyms. But that's a simple uh, uh, acronym that would allow you to understand and allow you to understand the plan of salvation. First of all, Jimmy, admit that you're a sinner. Yes, admit that you, uh, and you don't admit it to Rick or I, you admit it to a perfect, holy God who sent his son to die for us. Believe on the Lord and you shall be saved. God sent his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then, of course, it's as simple as calling unto him and asking him to come into your life and save you. We hope that you think about that. And as you, maybe this is the first time you're hearing Bible prophecy, but if it has an impact on your life, please think about you need to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior before that next event takes place in God's Word, which is the timeline and Bible prophecy, the rapture of the church. Rick, thank you for doing the hard work today on the program. Great job on the questions. I look forward to us revisiting news items again next week, examining current events in the light of God's prophetic Word. 
Jimmy, it's been a great program today, and I certainly do hope that people take to heart what we have shared today and recognize where we are in God's timeline of events. Rick, we always say this, but the rapture could happen even before this program is done today. Let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Thank you.